Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Danielle Nishida, and I'm joined today by Carson Lee. We're talking about the presumption rules and entity classification rules that withholding agents and financial institutions are required to follow when dealing with undocumented payees and account holders. The rules we'll be discussing today fall into two main categories, payee presumption rules and account holder classification rules. Payee presumption rules refer to the required rules that apply under the Treasury regulations when a withholding agent is making a payment of U.S. source FDAP income to an undocumented payee. These rules are detailed prescriptive rules that apply to any withholding agent, whether inside or outside of the United States. And the rules apply whenever the payee is not fully documented with valid and current documentation. Therefore, even if a payee is initially documented properly, if there's a change in circumstance that occurs or the documentation expires, the payee will be considered to be undocumented and the withholding agent is required to apply the presumption rules. And I'll just give you a heads up here. The payee presumption rules are designed to ensure that the Internal Revenue Service does not lose tax revenue as a result of undocumented payees. So they typically function to elicit the maximum amount of withholding pain whenever a payee is undocumented. On the other hand, the account holder classification rules refer to procedures that a financial institution should undertake for FACA and CRS when they're maintaining accounts for undocumented account holders. And so these rules are not going to apply to U.S. withholding agents. They're going to apply outside of the United States solely for financial institutions who are maintaining financial accounts. Some of these rules are prescriptive to the extent that there are financial institutions that are in jurisdictions that follow the Treasury regulations. But in other cases, financial institution is following an IGA or following the CRS procedures. A lot of them are not prescriptive detailed rules. They're a step-by-step process we go through to classify the accounts when that proper documentation is lacking. So they're not as clear as the Treasury reg rules. But we'll talk about that in a bit and we'll walk through how you classify in those cases. So starting first with the payee presumption rules. As I said, these rules are detailed in the regulations and they'll provide rules with respect to how to classify the entity type that you're dealing with, as well as how to determine whether that payee is a U.S. or foreign person and determine the entities or individuals FACA status for purposes of classifying them for FACA purposes. The application of these presumption rules is very fact specific. And so you're going to be mixing details that you know about the entity, things such as indicia or characteristics, along with subjective determinations. And it will apply to knowledge that the organization has as a whole, not just the individual person trying to determine the classification. The upside is they are very specific. So they do provide details for us to follow, which makes it helpful. And you're going to see that difference when we actually shift to talking about the account holder classification rules, which are not as clear. So as a starting point, when making a payment to a payee, we're going to classify that payee first as an individual or an entity. And you're going to do that classification usually based on the name. So if you can tell that the payee is an individual, you treat them as an individual. If the payee is not treated as an individual, then we'll funnel through various types of entities looking to see whether we can determine whether the entity appears to be a trust, an estate, a corporation, another type of an exempt recipient under Chapter 61. But if none of those statuses can be determined, the default will land you in the partnership classification. And so more likely than not, 
when an account holder is undocumented, unless they're an individual, which tends to be very apparent, you're going to more likely or not end up in a partnership classification. Once you've determined that your payee is either an individual or an entity and have classified them into a particular entity type, you're now going to be looking at whether that entity should be treated as a U.S. or foreign payee. Carson, do you want to walk us through the rules for determining U.S. or foreign status at a high level? So for a payee that you've determined as an individual, you're generally going to be treating them as a U.S. person unless the presumption rules say you can treat them as foreign. But the paths for treating an individual as foreign are pretty narrow. In general, the presumption rules require you to treat undocumented individuals as U.S. persons unless the payment is for services provided entirely outside of the United States. The payment is from some sort of tax-favored retirement or annuity. The payment is a taxable scholarship or fellowship grant or the payment is made with respect to an obligation outside of the United States. But even in those limited cases, additional requirements need to be met before you can treat the individual as foreign. You're also going to be treating entities as U.S. persons unless the rules say you can treat them as foreign, but the paths for treating entities as foreign are very wide and therefore a lot of entities should be presumed foreign in practice. So the first test for treating entities as foreign is a general test that looks to see if there are certain indicia that suggest that the entity is foreign. And this includes things like an EIN that starts with 98, a foreign mailing address, a foreign telephone number, a name that indicates that the entity is a type of per se foreign corporation, or again, the fact that the payment is being made with respect to an obligation outside of the United States, for example, a foreign bank account. But even if you don't have any indicia for an entity, there's another test that applies if the entity is receiving a withholdable payment, which is a payment in scope for FACA purposes. In that case, the entity is going to be treated as foreign and specifically as an MPFFI subject to FACA withholding if it's a type of entity that would be exempt from reporting and withholding if it was treated as a U.S. person. So this is going to include things like corporations, tax-exempt organizations, and other types of exempt recipients under Chapter 61. So there are a few carve-outs here for entities that by their nature must be U.S. entities. So for example, a U.S. government entity or a REIT, uh, but generally the rules under FACA ensure that most entities aren't going to escape holding by being exempt recipients, provided that they're receiving financial type payments subject to FACA. And lastly, there's a general rule for offshore obligations. So if you're making a payment outside of the United States with respect to an offshore obligation and the withholding agent has no actual knowledge that the payee is a U.S. person, then the payee is going to be presumed foreign, regardless of whether it's an individual or entity. Now, one thing to keep in mind is the rules that Carson just walked through apply to classifying payees. But if in our previous classification, where we went through the entity type, you ended up determining that this entity should be treated as either an intermediary or flow-through entity, the intermediary or flow-through entity is not the payee. And so if you've gotten to a classification where you have a foreign flow-through entity or foreign intermediary, you still need to determine how you treat the ultimate payees, which are the beneficial owners. And there is an additional rule that states that if you are making a payment to a presumed foreign intermediary or foreign flow-through entity, that the underlying owners are presumed to be foreign persons as well. And so if you have a case where you, for example, get what's called a naked IMY, where you just get the W-8 IMY with no associated documentation for the owners, the owners are generally going to be presumed to be foreign persons as well. There are a couple of exceptions that you should also be aware of that apply on top of these general rules that Carson laid out, and they will override the general presumption rules. So one rule that you should be aware of is Chapter 61 clawback rules, which apply to short-term interest, which will indicate in certain circumstances for certain payments generally to intermediaries and flow-through entities, if withholding wouldn't have applied under Chapter 3 or Chapter 4 for these payments, 
these clawback rules will come in and reclassify the individual as U.S. persons for Chapter 61 purposes, so that backup withholding would apply in those cases. In addition, there's an overarching rule that will apply for all regimes, and that will cause you to override the presumption rules in the circumstance where the withholding agent knows or has reason to know that the payee has a different status from what was reached under the presumption rules, and that status would result in a higher rate of withholding. And so, as is always the case, actual knowledge or reason to know never helps us as a withholding agent. It always hurts. So you never get out of withholding because you have knowledge that a lesser rate should apply. For example, if you know that a person is a U.S. person and shouldn't be subjected to 30 percent but would have been subjected to 24 percent at the most, you never get to apply that knowledge to reduce the withholding. But on the alternative, if you know that an individual is a foreign person and not a U.S. person, and so for U.S. source income, you know that they should actually be hitting with 30% instead of the 24%, you are required on that U.S. source income to bump them up to 30%. And this can lead to divergent results when classifying your payees based on the type of income they're receiving, because in that circumstance, that individual would have been hit with 24% on all foreign source income, because that's the highest rate that should apply, but because you have this knowledge that they're really a non-U.S. person, you're required to apply 30 percent on the U.S. source income. And so it's really important when classifying payees in your system that you classify them based on the type of payments they're receiving. And that is very difficult for large financial institutions where often they only have the fields for one classification. There is also a nuance there that's really hard to determine, which is when do you have reason to know? It's easy to know when you have actual knowledge. If a person tells you that they're a non-U.S. person and you're required to treat them as a U.S. person under the general presumption rules, then you know you should be bumping them up to the 30% on the U.S. source income. But when do you have reason to know? This should be a higher standard than just having certain indicia because the rules walk you through indicia tests. And if it were always going to be based on the highest rate based on indicia, we wouldn't need all of these detailed rules, but you're going to have many circumstances where you should have reason to know. And I think one of the common ones that comes to mind is if you have a payee that was originally documented with a W at Ben E and that Ben E expired, now under the presumption rules, you end up at a U.S. person classification. I would argue, and I think this is a pretty safe bet that the government would agree, that because you have expired documentation and you don't have any reason to know that the payee status has changed, on U.S. source income, you should be applying the 30% rate because you have a prior statement from that payee on that expired W-8 that they were a non-U.S. person. And so you are put on notice that the higher rate should apply for U.S. source income. I think that's the most common scenario where you're going to have reason to know that the payee has a different status and at a higher rate than what would have been applied under the general presumption rules. And another thing to keep in mind is that when you're relying on the presumption rules, most reductions to withholding are not available. So, for example, even if you presume that the recipient is a foreign government that would generally be exempt, you can't provide the exemption to them unless you have a valid W-80XP. Similarly, for treaty claims, even if you know the recipient would typically be able to claim a treaty rate at 0%, if they haven't provided the W-8BEN or BEN-E to make that claim, you can't provide that exemption to withholding. And the same rule applies for portfolio interest exception, because applying that exception requires the recipient to be properly documented. So, so far, we've just been discussing the pay presumption rules, which are really only relevant for withholding agents that are making payments potentially subject to reporting or withholding. 
But as Daniel mentioned in the beginning, there's another set of considerations for foreign financial institutions that need to classify their account holders for FATCA or CRS account reporting purposes. And the rules under FATCA are going to vary depending on whether we're dealing with a financial institution that falls under a FATCA IGA, in which case they're going to be subject to the rules under that IGA, or if we're dealing with a financial institution in a non-IGA jurisdiction that's going to be subject to the Treasury regulations. So for financial institutions subject to the Treasury regulations, the presumptions for account holders are somewhat similar to the rules for pays in the payment context, in that we start by determining the account holder's federal tax classification. But once we've made that determination, some unique FACA account rules come into play. So Treasury regulation financial institutions will typically treat undocumented entities as NPFFIs, which aren't subject to FACA account reporting, but will be subject to withholding on withholdable payments they receive. But for individuals, we don't actually reach a conclusion on whether they're U.S. or foreign, but instead we're treating all undocumented individuals as recalcitrant account holders, which are subject to both reporting and withholding. And one thing I want to note, when we use the term undocumented when talking about FACA and CRS account holders, that phrase doesn't translate literally. And what I mean is there are circumstances where a financial institution was not required to document a particular payee with actual documentation. So unlike the payee rules where you're generally required to have a W-8 on file for a payee, for FACA and CRS purposes, there were transitional rules that applied for pre-existing account holders. And when we get to the IGAs, there are certain cases where certain account holders were not required to provide documentation if the financial institution could classify those account holders based on other measures. When we use the term undocumented for FACA and CRS, it means you don't have the required documentation or information necessary to classify that individual. So a couple examples of this. For pre-existing accounts, for FACA and CRS purposes for individuals, you were often classifying the payee just based on an indicia search. And that was all you were required to do. In most cases, you did not have to get documentation from those payees. Those accounts are treated as documented, even though you never obtained additional documentation. Additionally, for FACA purposes, when classifying an account holder under the IGAs, a financial institution can often treat an account holder as a financial institution based simply on a GIN search on the IRS portal. Again, that's a case where that account holder will be treated as documented, even though the account holder hasn't actually provided any documentation. So I just want to be clear when we're talking about these account holder roles, that when we say undocumented, it means you do not have enough information necessary to classify the payee. And another point to keep in mind there is that you may have an account holder that's also receiving payments that are subject to the general U.S. rules we were discussing before, the pay rules. In that case, you can have an account holder that's documented for account reporting purposes, for example, but not payment reporting purposes. And even if they are undocumented for both payee and account holder purposes, you might actually reach different results. You might get one classification as a payee where the payee is presumed to be a non-participating financial institution subject to withholding. But separately for account documentation purposes, that payee may be treated as a U.S. account holder subject to FACA reporting. This is another example of cases where you might have multiple classifications based on the circumstances for the same payee or same individual. So that's another example of cases where you might actually have to track in your system multiple classifications for the same individual or entity. Now, Carson talked about the rules for FATCA purposes if the financial institution is in a treasury regulation jurisdiction, i.e. a jurisdiction that does not have an IGA. I'm going to shift to talking about the rules that will apply for a financial institution in an IGA jurisdiction. What's notable here is the IGAs do not contain specified presumption rules in the way that the regulations do. And 
IGA jurisdictions will be following the rules of the local jurisdiction. So it's possible those local jurisdictions have created more detailed rules, but we're not generally seeing jurisdictions doing this. And so what we've got are these set of rules in the IGAs talking about how practically to classify an entity. And we're going to apply those rules and somewhat elicit presumption rules out of there. But the reason that the IGAs don't have presumption rules is because you are not allowed to have undocumented accounts for FATCA purposes under the IGAs. The idea is that when you've got new accounts, you are either getting the proper documentation up front or you're not opening that account in the first place. And when you have undocumented accounts, you're closing those accounts out. So we have to say, as we talk about these rules under the IGAs for FACA, and when we move to talking about them for CRS purposes, we're going to come up with recommendations for how to classify your account holders when they're undocumented. But we have to say the right way to approach this as drafted under the rules is that you should be closing out these accounts. You shouldn't have these scenarios in the first place. But if you continue to have them, then we're going to recommend that you generally report those accounts. And thus, we're going to walk you through how to go about reporting these account holders. So I look at it more as entity classification for account reporting purposes rather than presumption rules because they aren't technically presumption rules as drafted in the guidance. So from an IGA perspective, if you have an account holder who's undocumented, you should be closing the account. If you keep the account open, you should be reporting that account holder. And it's a little easier in FACA because the choice is either treating them as reportable, generally as a U.S. account holder, or treating them as not reportable. And since we're taking the view that you've got an undocumented account that shouldn't exist, the safer answer is to report them. The question is merely, how do we report them? Because for FACA purposes, we could have reporting of a direct account holder, which would be the case if you had a U.S. individual or a U.S. entity, or you could have scenarios where you're required to report the owners of the entities, as is the case with passive NFFEs who have U.S. controlling persons as their owners. And so it's not as simple as just saying we're going to report this account holder, because if you had an entity that really should have been treated as a passive NFFE, reporting the entity isn't as valuable to the IRS. They want the reporting of the owners. So the process we're going to go through is to determine whether you should be reporting the account holder directly or the owners of that account holder. So a first step you want to look at is, does the account holder appear to be an individual? If the account holder is an individual and it's an individual that should be documented, meaning we're not talking about a pre-existing account where we could have just relied on an indicia test to treat them as documented, but we actually are required to obtain documentation from the individual, as is the case with new accounts, then we're going to treat that individual as a U.S. account holder and report them. So this is going to potentially cause problems for you because you may have a presumed U.S. individual that you're going to be reporting without providing the required tax ID, and that is going to be something that gets flagged in the IRS system, which is why you want to minimize the number of these accounts that are undocumented. So presuming you have no U.S. indicia and we're not reporting the entity directly, we're now going to look at, well, do you have any other information on file that allows you to conclusively determine that the entity is either a financial institution or some accepted active NFFE category, for example? Because we're under these presumption rules, we're going to presume that we didn't because if we had that information, we would have classified them as under those categories in the first place. So practically speaking, if we have an entity that is lacking U.S. indicia, we're going to default them into being treated as a passive NFFE in most cases. And as a passive NFFE, we're going to be looking to the owners of the entity and reporting those owners. If you can identify controlling persons, here's where the pre-existing rules vary from the new account rules. 
for pre-existing accounts, if the account value had been a million or less at the date of testing, which is going to happen on an annual basis, then all you're looking for is, is there any U.S. indicia for those controlling persons? If there was no U.S. indicia for those pre-existing accounts and the controlling person was not reportable. On the other hand, if the account value is greater than a million dollars on any of the other required testing dates, or if we're not dealing with a pre-existing account and we're dealing with a new account where documentation was required, you're automatically reporting those controlling persons regardless of whether they have any U.S. indicia or not. Now, it gets trickier when you can't identify controlling persons because you just don't have a name of an individual associated with the account or you can tell that that individual is not a controlling person. In that case, there's really nothing to report for the owners. And what we'd recommend now is reverting back to reporting the entity because you're going to need to report something to justify to the government why you're even keeping this account open in the first place. You want to show that you're doing everything possible, which means reporting something. And since you can't identify an owner to report, the safer answer would be to report the entity itself, even though there's no U.S. indicia associated with the entity. Again, I have to say, none of this is necessarily an allowed process, but it's what you're doing to show a good faith effort to the government that even though I didn't close this account, I am giving you all the information we have and we're doing the best job we can reporting. And the flows for undocumented accounts under the CRS are, are very similar to the flows that Danielle just discussed under the IGAs, except that in the CRS context, you're looking for indicia in any reportable CRS jurisdiction rather than just the United States. And again, the new accounts should actually be documented or closed. But if the FI can't close the account for whatever reason, these flows help fill in the gap. And let's just think about what that means then, because from a FACA perspective, the flow I walked through was already messy. But when we look at CRS, you can have indicia in potentially three different jurisdictions, and you can have indicia for the entity itself, and you can have indicia for the owners of the entity. So it is possible you would be reporting the entity itself plus reporting the owners of that entity, and in some cases to multiple jurisdictions. So CRS becomes far more complicated than FACA when we deal with undocumented account holders. I think the message that we want you to take away from all of this is you really don't want to have undocumented account holders. Unlike the payee rules where there are prescriptive rules that you can follow that you're allowed to and required to follow, which generally lead to withholding, but once you've withheld, remove the liability on the withholding agent. On a FACA CRS side, having undocumented account holders is a really dangerous thing. You have to go through these complicated measures to try to do some reporting and hope that the government will accept that reporting without treating you as being non-compliant. And you're still at risk. The government is going to track how many of these undocumented accounts you have. They're going to show up as undocumented because you're not going to have the required tax ID numbers when you do the reporting. And it's going to put your status and your compliance at risk. So I think the overarching message that we would want you to take away from this is you don't want to be in the circumstance of being undocumented. So whenever possible, you're going to be trying to close these accounts and to reduce the number of undocumented accounts that you're dealing with. So that's going to wrap up our episode for today. Thank you for listening in. We hope you can join us for another break soon. 